Hi, I'm Lise Wheel with The Pursuit of Justice, and justice is the word we're going to be focusing on today, primarily the Department of Justice. President Trump is saying that the Department of Justice may have been spying on him as far back as when he wasn't the president. He was actually campaigning for the presidency. If what he is saying is true, if the allegations are true, this is bigger than Watergate. This is one of the biggest scandals that this country has ever seen. To follow this trail of justice, the pursuit of justice, exactly what we're talking about uh, in this podcast and in this chat with you folks, I'm going to bring in Francie Hakes. She is a national security consultant. She was with the department for more than 10 years. And Ken Goode, who is a senior uh, consultant and fellow with the American Center for American Progress. They're going to talk to us and give us both sides of this analysis. I want to go to them and have a real a conversation that's going to give you behind the, de- behind the headlines on this one. This is so important, everybody. I mean, come on. We're talking about the DOJ. We're talking about the Department of Justice. These are the people that are supposed to protect us. And uh, yes, I worked for the Department of Justice when I was a federal prosecutor. I've been inside the Department of Justice. I'm a third-generation Department of Justice person. My father before me, my grandfather before him. I mean, we have to be able to trust federal prosecutors and the, at the highest level. These are the people that protect us and protect our laws. We have to be able to stand up and say, these are the best people in the country to protect us. If they're not, that's a big deal, people. That's a huge deal. And to give you another taste of another pursuit of justice, going on a case that happened 49 years ago in the summer of 1969, I'm going to have an exclusive interview with the cousin of Gary Hinman, one of the people that was murdered by the Manson clan. All right, let's get right to it. Um, I'd like to bring in uh, aforesaid Francie Hakes. She is a national security consultant. Um, has been with the Department of Justice for, as I said, more than uh, 10 years from 2002 through 2012. Uh, Francie, welcome. And also Ken Goode, who is a uh, senior uh, fellow with the Center for American Progress. Uh, both of you, welcome to the Pursuit of Justice with Lise Wheel. That's me. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Lise. Nice to be here. Uh, great Thank to you, have Great, great to, to have you, you both. Um, I'd like to have you both sort of give us your opinion on where we are now with this whole uh, Trump uh, Department of Justice loggerhead, really, where the president is saying, hey, uh, there may be spies or had been spies in my campaign. Francie, that that can't be true, right? Well, Lise, it's really interesting. There's certainly a lot of heat on this issue. Unfortunately, at this point, not yet a lot of light. I, my biggest concern here is that the national security apparatus of the U.S. government, which, as you know, is a very serious amount of tools in the toolbox of the government, may have been directed at an American political campaign for, mo- for not much more than political reasons, and that is shocking. 
Well, Ken, what do you think about that? I mean, what Francie said right there is pretty shocking. I mean, if it's if the political toolbox is, is aimed uh, for political reasons, that means that the whole Department of Justice is being used uh, as a political uh, a political machine. I mean, it's the par- Department of Justice after all. Well, that would be scary, but it unfortunately doesn't really add up in my view. All right. If this whole thing was a political plot by the Department of Justice or the FBI in 2016, then why did they not use the information that they gathered during the political campaign? It just doesn't make much sense. And if it was an ongoing plot here, this is a political plot to attack the president, why then is it being carried out by his own political appointees. So there seems to be a lot of smoke around this accusation, but when you peel back the layers, it doesn't really seem to add up to the kinds of things that we've been hearing about from the president and his allies. All right, Francie, that is an excellent point that Ken Good makes that if there were spies in the in the campaign against Trump, in other words, if the Obama administration had planted spies in the 2016 campaign against the then Trump, uh, who was running for not President Trump, but the, the candidate Trump, why weren't they then used to better effect? And then, uh, that's the first question, and then, uh, then now, why wouldn't they be used? Uh, they'd be used then by the people that are actually in uh, the, uh, the the Trump on the Trump side. That doesn't make any sense. And when you when you peel it back, Francie. Well, Lise, I think it does make sense if you look at it from a slightly different lens. I'm very familiar with some of the people involved. I worked with Sally Yates, for example, for a decade. What I think is that it looks to me like the top-level political appointees at the Department of Justice and inside the FBI and the White House probably honestly believe that Donald Trump was in bed with the Russians in such a way that they were going to easily be able to uncover it. They had no probable cause for criminal warrants. So they ran national security assets at the campaign. Now you're getting at it. Wait, 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 I got to stop you right here. Now you're getting at a technicality, though. Now you're getting at that technicality that you've been talking about for a couple of days, a criminal uh, complaint versus the FISA warrant, all of that. But that's a that's a technical that's a technicality that you're getting at, though. What about the reality? Yeah, so that is the reality. What I'm saying is I think the motivation was not, as Ken is saying, that everyone else was talking about political. Not necessarily. Not really. It was certainly a bias. And I think because of their political bias, they were willing to do anything. The ends justified the means, including using assets they shouldn't be using, because they really believed they would uncover, easily uncover, criminal conduct in the form of some conspiracy between the Russians and Trump. Okay, wait a second. So you're saying that back in 2015, 
Because you have to peel it that far back if, to, if your analysis is correct. I just want to make sure I understand it to, to carry it all the way forward. Back in 2015, before the election, that there were line assistants, line federal prosecutors and DOJ employees, just like you had been from 2002 to 2012, who so believed that their biases were so strong that they were blind blinded by those biases, that they so believed that Trump was involved and in bed with the Russians that they, that they were blinded by these biases and broke the law. Uh, that's what it looks like to me, but, Lise, I don't think it's line assistants and line agents. But they I broke the law. people at but, the top. But they broke the law. Well, uh, maybe. I, mean, it's cert- I don't think we know enough to say that yet, but it certainly looks that way. And, and who would have broken the law? Well, if they use national security assets and without probable, uh, probable cause, without justification, then that violates all policies and may violate the law. I think it would have been the highest level of the department and of the FBI. Those people in that secret, sensitive, matters group at the FBI, the working group at Langley under John Brennan, it had to be a very high-level close-hold group who knew about the investigation's launch. And do you know some of the people that are still there that that you think uh, violated the law, that are still employed by the Department of Justice? you name some of them? Yeah, I don't know any of the people at the FBI, as far as I'm aware. I certainly, I worked with Jim Baker, who was FBI counsel at the time all this was going on. I worked with Sally Yates, but she's not uh, at the Department of Justice anymore. I worked with Matt Axelrod, who was her principal deputy at the time. So I worked with a lot of the people, but I don't believe they're there anymore. Okay, so so you let's let's move it forward. So you think that they were so biased that they potentially have violated the law, um, but they they didn't they weren't successful, obviously. So move it forward to now. I mean, let's go to Ken's second point that they were so unsuccessful. Then what what's going on now? Well, that's the whole point. Is that part of the reason I think to run national security assets at this issue rather than conventional criminal assets is because it allows that investigation to remain tight, close hold, and top secret and classified. Therefore, if it leaks, it's illegal, which dissuades people from leaking the investigation. And as you know, also prevents notifications that would generally happen in criminal cases from happening. What happens now? Why? Well, it's, what happens now is it's been leaked. There's leaks all over the place. According to the Times and the Post, New York Times and Washington Post, they have foreign, former and current FBI officials telling them who this supposed informant was. So what they're doing now is exactly what Ken said they might have been doing then or should have been doing then if there was a political motive, and that is leaking. Ken, what do you, what do you make of, the, of Francie's assertion that there, uh, that there are people in the Department of Justice really high up in 2015, 2016, that broke the law. I mean, blatantly broke, broke the law because of their biases. Well, it, I, I don't see any evidence of that. And in fact, I see evidence of the opposite. 
because this was an extraordinarily tightly held investigation. So much so that when the New York Times ran a story about potential Trump-Russia ties on October 31st, 2016, the FBI said they found no evidence of Russia ties with the Trump campaign. And so it just I, I just don't understand what the impetus of these people who, uh, I guess, in Francie's mind, were setting out to commit grave crimes against their political opponents, but essentially kept that entirely secret at the time when it would have been valuable. But let's also remember what we now know about what was happening in the spring and summer of 2016 before any of this activity by the FBI began to investigate potential Russian ties to the Trump campaign and potential Russian involvement in the election. It was in June of that year, before the FBI got involved, that a, a Russian cutout informed the senior most officials of the Trump campaign that the Russian government had an ongoing effort to help elect Trump, and they wanted to meet in New York to give them dirt about their political opponent, Hillary Clinton. And that happened at Trump Tower meeting, the famous one that we now know right. about with the president's son, his son-in-law, and the campaign chairman. And at that meeting, the premise of it was about getting dirt from the Russians on Hillary Clinton. Now, the Is FBI didn't like make that up. I mean, they didn't come up with it. Francie, what were you going to say? Let Francie interject here, Ken. Yeah, so, sure. I mean, Ken is making a point where he's accusing the Trump team of colluding with Russians because of taking a meeting. What about the Clinton campaign actually paying Russian dirt on Trump? I, I just, I don't understand why people ignore one and emphasize okay, the other. Okay, okay, well, I, th I think we can, I, I don't think we have to ignore either, but right now what we're talking about is the, the, the whole idea of the Department of Justice. We can say that both campaigns, let's, let's just say hypothetically that both campaigns were equally dirty, right? But what about the Department of Justice? You, you know, uh, Francie, you worked for the Department of Justice for 10 years. Um, Ken, you know, I'm sure you have some regard for the Department of Justice. Look, the Department of Justice is what we as Americans have to rely on um, to be clean. And Francie, your, you know, your allegations here is that it, the Department of Justice at its very highest level is not, um, you know, whether it's because of their, you know, uh, biases that are, are well, uh, you know, well meant, whatever. The fact is what you're alleging is that in 2015, 2016, at the very highest level, the Department of Justice, uh, you know, uh, the highest level, they broke the law. So, you know, let's let's focus on that. And Ken, and your reaction to that and not get sidetracked by the uh, by, you know, which campaign did what? Yeah, yeah so Lee, I mean, I completely agree with you. It may it does not bring me any pleasure to accuse the Department of Justice of any wrongdoing. I'm terribly proud of the time that I spent there and the work that they did and that they continue to do yeoman's work every day on a variety of important cases. And just to contrast Ken's point, I'm not saying that these 
people at the highest levels of government set out to intentionally break the law. I'm saying that I believe, based on what we know now, what we know now, which is not everything, but based on what we know now, that they were so biased against Trump that they firmly believed they would easily find evidence of wrongdoing and so were willing to flout their own rules, policies, procedures, the FISA uh, act and everything else in order to try to uncover evidence they probably believe they would easily find. Okay. Now, you know, uh, what, what, what I have learned, I guess, for maybe for being a prosecutor formerly, I, I'm a former federal prosecutor myself, Francie, and maybe for having covered uh, crimes for a long time, but the cover-up is always worse than the crime, it seems. For sure. And I want to ask you both, um, from your different perspectives, your different vantage points, do you think now the Department of Justice is trying to cover up what they did um, wrong? And in your position, I guess, Francie, you would say criminally wrong. Um, I'll start with you, Ken. I, I don't see any evidence that they're trying to cover it up, nor would I understand what the motive of the Trump administration officials would be, the Trump political appointees would be, to cover it up. I mean, that the current director of the FBI was appointed by President Trump explicitly because the president fired the last director of the FBI. It would seem that Christopher Wray would have every incentive if the FBI had acted in the manner in which Francie alleges here, Christopher Wray would have every reason to root that out. And instead, he seems to be fighting these kinds of, uh, of aggressive steps from both the Congress and the White House to force the Department of Justice and the FBI to reveal sensitive information about an ongoing investigation. So I don't see any evidence of the kind of uh, wrongdoing that we are hearing from Francie and those who are supporting the president and the president himself. In fact, I see the opposite. Francie? Well, and just to be clear, my... <laughs> My discussion here has nothing to do with politics, uh, for, for sure. There was wrongdoing on all sides, I think, in, in this particular issue. But with respect to the Department of Justice now and what they're doing, I think people who've never worked for the Department of Justice don't really, or any major department inside the government, don't really understand what happens between political appointees and those who are career, both bureaucrats and then line prosecutors, for example, at DOJ. And it's really the career people who run the agency. They have to, right? For continuity of government, you have to have senior officials who are supposedly nonpartisan who run these agencies. And political appointees come in, and there's almost, for some people, there's a hunker down. I'm sure you heard this, least when you were at DOJ. There's a hunker down mentality of, we'll just wait this guy or this girl out, because pretty soon there'll be someone else. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if the main career elements at these agencies are determined to protect the reputation of the agencies. But don't underestimate what happens when these political appointees get appointed. Chris Ray is appointed for 10 years, so he has an incentive to protect the FBI and the FBI's storied reputation. So a little reluctance to release information that might make them look bad or even criminal is, I mean, it's not right, but I understand it. Well, do you think, though, instead of maybe a cover-up, that what's happening is just 
uh, Trump's sort of almost infamous at this point attempts to deflect. Uh, you know, he's not happy with way, the way the uh, independent counsel's investigation is going. So this is now just another one of his attempts to deflect that away from him and to come up with, you know, this, this headline now, spies in my campaign. Good deflection, Francie, don't you think? Well, you certainly can't say that's not the case. I mean, he, uh, you know, his, his tweets in large measure are wholly inappropriate. They're definitely unpresidential. They're not helpful in a law enforcement or any other kind of investigation. So I certainly wish he wouldn't do it. And I think it has definitely complicated matters and forced some people in the FBI and DOJ to and CIA and the other agencies to wonder whether they're going to get prosecuted thrown out, uh, publicized, and so I understand their instinct to cover themselves. Ken, I'll give you the last word. Well, look, investigating presidents is always extremely, extremely difficult, especially it's, it's one of the most politically fraught things that the executive branch can do. But what I think we've grown increasingly concerned about here is how the president has taken every step to make that process even more difficult. He has, from the very beginning, tried to shut down, thwart, undermine, or deceive this investigation. And this latest step is just another one in that long chain that has broken down what I think was the appropriate norm after the Watergate scandal of creating a separation between the political operation in the White House and the Justice Department that is, as you so rightly say, there to protect all Americans and everyone in this country under the cover of, of the law. And now we find ourselves in this great crisis where the president seems to be directing the, his Department of Justice to open an investigation on those who are investigating him. And that is a very dangerous moment for this democracy. Ken Good, Francie, Francie Hakes, thank you so much for this uh, great and very, very informative discussion. I very much appreci appreciate it. Thanks very thank much. You. Glad to be with you. Wow, that was an amazing conversation between Ms. Hakes and Mr. Good. I just want everybody to stop for a minute and recognize that in that conversation, uh, the Department of Justice was really brought out and, and, and focused on as having people that are in the Department of Justice now who are, have broken the law. Um, Francie Hakes said, look, there are people there at the highest level of the Department of Justice working now who, in her estimation, and she was there for 10 years, more than 10 years, have broken the law. These are serious allegations. The Department of Justice, the people that are there to uphold the laws, to protect us all, Wow, um, gotta take a, take a step back and just think about this for a minute. 
Uh, moving on to uh, our second topic. Um, it's a it's a switcheroo here. Uh, I will grant you that, but we are in the pursuit of justice here, and that we will do. I have a very, very special guest with me, uh, my dear friend. I might, may, Kay, may I call you my friend? It's Kay Martley. Um, you may. I may. You may. Okay, good. <laughs> I uh, met Kay uh, during my research and writing of a book uh, called Hunting Charles Manson, The Quest for Justice in the Days of Helter Skelter. And it's about to come out, this book. And in the research of this, I... Um, went uh, to find people that were uh, could tell me the story about Charles Manson and, and um, the, the 1969 and, and the really the horrible things that he did and could tell me you know the effect that the cult had on him and the, and the people on them and, the, and, and what, what had happened to them in a really personal way. And I had the really good fortune, and it sounds it sounds strange to say you had good fortune when you're talking about Charles Manson, but I did, in meeting Kay Martley. And Kay told me about Gary Hinman. And Gary Hinman, um, and I'll let Kay sort of take it from here, but Gary Hinman was Kay's cousin. And Gary Hinman um, was a musician back in those days and uh, lived in Topanga Canyon, um, there in the LA area, and I'll I'll tell you, Kay, I was just out there a few weeks ago, and uh, visited uh, where Gary used to live. Um, I don't know if you even knew that. Um, I went to the place. No, I didn't. Yes, I went there. I actually went there and took a look. Um, it's very different now, and looks a lot different. Yes, you might imagine. But I wanted Thank to actually see it. Years. Yeah, I wanted to actually see it after all, all doing all this research. Anyway, so I met Kay over the phone, and and um, we were we we did, we talked so many times, and we finally met at the parole hearing of Tex Watson. And of course, uh, if you if any of you been you know know about uh, uh, Charles Manson, you know that Tex Watson actually was the murderous soul who uh, carried out the horrible murders uh, that summer of 1969 in the, in, the, in the Tate home and then the LaBianca home. But I have with me Kay Martley. And Kay, I'm so glad that you're here with me. And I want you to tell us more about Gary Hinman, your cousin, and, uh, and, and just tell us a story about who Gary Hinman was and a little bit about what happened to him. Uh, Gary was, like you said, a musician, and in those days, which was kind of a hippie bit, but area time, uh, people would stop in, and he'd let them borrow his couch, uh, who were other musicians. So, uh, unfortunately, he crossed paths with uh, Manson, and uh, Manson remembered he lived in this house, and that he was a mus- Gary was a musician, so he decided that he would. Uh, Gary was a, a he had turned to Buddhism. He had been into the drug scene earlier in uh, his life, but now was completely out of it. Was a Buddhist and was going to make a pilgrimage to Japan uh, on the Buddhism. And Manson got it in his head that Gary had a lot of money if he was going to take and go to Japan. But unfortunately, it was Gary's parents who were going to pay for the trip and were going with him. So they came to his house, 
and wanted money from him. And Gary said, I, I don't have any money. I have very little. You can have whatever I have, but I have nothing. So they kept him in his house for three days and tortured him and finally ended up killing him. And uh, there was no passion. It was just downright meanness on their part. They're psychopaths. They're sociopaths. And they take orders from Charles Manson. So what makes you think these individuals could be ever become good? Because if they can follow a man like Charles Manson and do the things that they did under his approval, uh, and five of them remain still in jail, and I fight constantly to keep them from getting parole. They all were given the death sentence, uh, but that was overturned at one time and then turned back into uh, but excuse me, into death sentences. But in the meantime, California legislature made anybody who had got the death sentence to give them life imprisonment. But they left out these crucial words, at, without parole. They should have had life imprisonment without parole, and they didn't get it. Now they're working themselves towards being senior uh, prisoners and being released under that pris uh, senior business because they've been there 40 plus years. Well, that's what happened but with te Tex Watson, remember? We were worried right. that you were worried that, that Tex Watson would get out because even though he committed all those murders, I mean, slit all those right. throats, that he was, he'd reached 70 years old and he'd been there for all those years. So the parole officer might have been mandated to let him out. And they're all psychopaths and, and, and sociopaths. You cannot rehabilitate them. You cannot do it. You can ask any psychologist, and he'll tell you it's impossible. Well, they all thought, what do you think about they're all thinking that, you know, Manson was some kind of Jesus? Right. So that's, I mean, when you consider that these people followed a man uh, for the reasons they followed him and did what they did. They left Gary in a house that was uh, in the summer with no air conditioning and his body in, after several days started to disintegrate and there was maggots in him. And uh, Bobby Beausoleil came back to the house on about the fourth or the fifth day to make sure they hadn't left in any incriminating evidence. And he saw what was happening to Gary's body, and he didn't care. He just left. And they stole his cars. They made him sign the pink slips for him. But basically, they stole his two cars that he had. They weren't any fancy cars. They were old cars. Um, and these five people remain in prison, and that's where they should be. They got the death sentence, and they should stay in prison till they die. Yeah, didn't uh, Charles Manson cut off Gary's ear f first? I'm sorry, say it again. Charles Manson cut off Gary's ear first in yes, torturing him? Yes, they carried, they, and then they tried to stitch it up with dental floss. And he begged them to take him to the ER and said, just drop me off. I'll stay there. I won't tell anybody anything. But they, Manson's decided that he was... They might as well kill him. They've already been there. They don't, they've got the cars. 
they didn't need they didn't need him. What what did Gary's death do to your family? It was unbelievable. We come from a normal, average American family. Uh, we do volunteer work. We taxpayers. We don't go uh, do illegal things. We're just normal, average people. And none of us could believe that it could action. Somebody in our family could be murdered. And then it was such a gross way. Uh, it was just horrible. And then unbeknownst to us, that in two weeks later, I really believe Gary was a test case for Manson because then he went on to the Tate House because the police did nothing. They didn't compare notes. And granted, in those days, they did not have the communications that they have now that they could have cross-referenced because they did the same thing in Gary's house and rode pig on the walls in blood just like they did at Sharon Tate's house. Do you think but the nobody picked up on it? Do you think the police bungled this case? You know, I don't have an opinion on that. Uh, I think what the, where the bungle comes in now, and that's my major concern, is with the parole board and the state legislature letting these five individuals to apply for parole under as senior citizens. They should not be released. They committed horrendous crimes. They were just, they were not crimes of passion. They were planned and executed with no care, no conscience or anything about it. Right. And the fact that they weren't crimes of passion and, and they were planned and executed, that goes against them, right? And explain why. I would hope so. Yeah. I would hope so. But the parole board has now, I've been to five parole hearings for Bruce Davis, and they keep rubber stamping it because they did it before. And the only thing that has saved uh, the families is that Governor Brown and Governor Schwarzenegger rescinded those paroles. Or those men that Bruce Davis would be on the street, Leslie Ben Houghton would be on the street. But thank God for the governors who have sense and know it shouldn't be done. How hard is it? I mean, I was there for one parole hearing with you and uh, Deborah Tate and uh, and uh, and all the others. I mean, there were you you were all there for that like nine hour parole right. hearing in that maximum security um, prison. What is it like for you all to meet and have to go to these hearings again and again and again, it, year after year after it is, year? Oh, uh, it is so. It it just takes such energy out of you. It just sucks it out of you. Uh, they, they sit there, they get three meals a day, they don't have to pay rent, they don't pay taxes. Uh, it just, and then when you, and you always have to go over, I hate it, but you have to look at the crime. And it's just awful to re-put yourself into that era when that crime happened and what my cousin went through and the other individuals, uh, Sharon Tate and the LaBiancas, all those family members, it takes such energy out of you. But we have to keep fighting because these people do not deserve to live with other people in the community. They are not decent human beings and they never will be. Kay, do you- And then the other thing that makes me mad is Bobby Beausoleil, 
who is the one I said left Gary without, he could have called 911. Why of couldn't course. he have done that? Um, he has a website on Facebook. <laughs> he makes money off of his art and music in prison. I don't know where that money goes. It should go to victims' families is where it should go. Can they stop that? Is there any way to stop that, Kay, that you know of? I've I've written the parole board. I've written the governor about it. I don't know what else to do about it. Okay, okay. Th- uh, thanks for letting me know about that. Uh, I'm going to look into that. Um, Kate, do you? We've talked about Manson, and, and and you've been following this obviously so closely because you're a victim in all of this. And now in 2018, do you? When you look out there and you see culture and you see the shootings in the in the schools that we have, it seems on such a rampant basis. Do you see that there are the possi- There is a possibility of another Manson-like character out there, another Manson-like cult. I do. I do. I do. We still have cults. You still have people who follow Manson's beliefs. Uh, to the day he died, he still had followers. He got mail. Uh, I think it's still possible. It saddens me that mental health uh, is not catching these people. We're not. Our system isn't working for us. And the poor, innocent people, uh, bystanders, are getting injured and killed by these crazies. Okay, thank you so much. Um, I just want to tell you that you were an inspiration to me in writing this oh, book. Good. Yes, you really were. Like I, like I said, um, there were some times when this material, um, it, you know, in putting it together, it was very, very difficult. And you, you, you know, I and I didn't have to live it as closely as you did. But even just g- gathering enough to to write a book um, was difficult sometimes. But you asked me early on to write um, Gary's story in a respectful way and to do it correctly because it hadn't been done properly before. And I gave you my word, and I took that really seriously. And you will see, I hope, in Chapter 3 that it is done okay. with respect and um, and it is really dedicated to you, Kay. Um, and I hope you'll oh, see well, that it's you. it's done in a way that I hope that you'll see that it, it has not been done before. I mean, it's still it's still not it's still you know horrible to go through, but it would it is done um, in a very factual and matter of fact way. But it portrays Gary, um, I think that you know in a, in a way that's real. And you had told me that the things had been said about him that were not true, and uh, I took that very much to heart. So. Um, I thank you for that. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Kay. And thank you so much for everything you did for me in that room because I know, I know who was helping me there when the others wouldn't talk. I know who was my, I know who was my little helper in there. I know who was there. (laughs) I know. You don't have to say anything, but I know who was there. So I really thank you because that was, that was quite an experience for me as well. You know, that I, I, that was an experience for me to be in that room as well with you with you all and to see Tex well, Watson. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. Because I want I want Gary and the victims families uh, to get uh, what I want them to have an honest fair shake by the government yes. uh, of California. Yes. And 
up to now, I'm not seeing it. And it's such a shame that you would let these people out on the street. That Who wants them living next door to you? Uh, I, I don't want... No Bobby Boussoulet next door to me, that's for sure. Or no Tex Watson right. next door right. to me. One <laughs> and one never knows, do they? But but thank you, Kay, and keep up the good work. You're and let welcome. me know if I can ever do anything thank to you, help Lisa. you. Thank you, Kay, so much for telling us your story about your cousin Gary Hinman. And I could not agree more with you than that those murderers should never be released they should never be granted probation, parole, whatever. Uh, the governor of California should make sure that they stay behind bars. Tex Watson, number one, uh, the murderer that he is, should never be granted uh, parole. Um, the fact that they're even up for parole is beyond me. Um, and I'm with you 100% and with the victims of the, the murderous Manson family, family in quotes. Um, and Kay, I, I salute you for all the work that you're doing. That wraps it for this edition of The Pursuit of Justice. We've gone from President Trump and the Department of Justice all the way back to California in the summer of 1969. Till next time, this is Lise Wheel for The Pursuit of Justice.